Welcome to the Politics of Truth with me, Bob Crawford. This program is brought to you by Osiris Media, a network that connects you more deeply with the music you love. I'm a dad and a husband first, but out in the world, I'm a professional musician and a political junkie. For those that know me, this connection between politics and music is natural. So each week, I'll be speaking with top-notch political reporters, policy experts, and musicians about what's at stake in this seismic moment of cultural change. As Democrats meet virtually to formally nominate Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to take on Donald Trump and Mike Pence this November, we here at Politics of Truth have our gaze fixed firmly on music. This week, I spoke with Kendall Marvel, a Nashville-based singer and decorated songwriter who's written chart-topping hits for Gary Allen, Jamie Johnson, Chris Stapleton, and more. Kendall wrote his first song on the day he moved to Nashville back in 1988. And after two decades as a writer and guitarist for Big Name Acts, he's broken out as a solo artist with his records Low Down and Lonesome and Solid Gold Sounds. I've really enjoyed discovering Kendall's music, and his personal story is just as interesting. Kendall's dad was a hard-edged coal miner who taught him everything he knows, gave him a guitar at the age of five, and had him playing at bars with his buddies by the age of ten. We talk about the evolution of Kendall's strong political views, which are hard to pin down and why he voices these on Twitter rather than in his lyrics. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, sit back, relax, and meet Kendall Marvel. Kendall Marvel, welcome to The Politics of Truth. Thank you for having me this morning. Well, Kendall, uh, our listeners just heard me introduce your musical accolades, and we're going to get to all that. But I think a lot of our views in life come to us from where we grew up and from how we were raised. Can you, for our listeners, kind of uh, tell us your origin story, the Kendall Marvel origin story? I grew up in, uh, in a small town in southern Illinois, about three and a half hours northwest of Nashville here. So uh, very rural, very redneck you know, area, a lot of coal mines. Uh, that was kind of my dad was a coal miner growing up. So he put a guitar in my hand at a very young age, at five years old, and, and uh, showed me a few chords. And I guess I took an interest in it. I, I, you know, I really vaguely remember learning to play guitar, but uh, I think I learned uh, an old folk song called Tom Dooley was the first tune that I ever learned. And uh, he'd get me, he'd come in with his buddies after work, you know, they'd go to the bar, get drunk up, and then show up at the house and get me out of bed on a school night. And he'd make me play songs for him and things. So that was kind of my start. And, uh, Done that for a while. About 10 years old, I, I got to go start playing in the bars. He would take me out. He'd get free beer. I'd get tips and pickled eggs or whatever they had, but beef jerkies. And that went on until I was old enough to get my own band, start playing solo, you know, around the, around the area. And, uh, formed a band right out of high school and uh, had a pretty good regional following for a long time. And I guess took that as far as it'd go. Decided to make a move to Nashville at, at the tender age of 28 years old. So uh, your dad was a coal miner. I mean, you have this voice that is ageless and timeless. I mean, you could have been out there with Willie and Waylon and uh, Charlie Daniels, uh, you know, in the 70s. You would have fit right in with those guys. What was it like for you? You've lived the quintessential country life, right? So what was it like for you at that young age being in these bars with coal miners and 
I mean, I'm sure you saw things I try to protect my son from seeing, but what was your childhood like? Was it all music or were there other things that you enjoyed? I mean, that was, you know, that was about it for me growing up. You know, I, of course, I, I love sports like most kids do. I've done a lot of sports, but, you know, I obviously knew that I was never going to be good enough to do any of that for a living. And even at a young age, I had an unusually deep voice at, you know, 10 or 11 years old. I kind of had the feeling that from what everybody was telling me, I don't think that many people would blow that much smoke up my ass that, you know, I thought that I could do this for a living. Uh, I didn't think it would work out the way it did. Uh, you know, I thought I would just be a famous country singer, you know. I didn't know that I was going to be a songwriter for everybody else for 20 years before any artistry thing took off. But I mean, I, there was no plan B, you know, I mean, that was it. My childhood was very strange. My dad, you talked about Willie Whalen and Charlie Daniels, you know, they turned them guys outlaws. You know, uh, my dad was an outlaw. Uh, he's still around today. He's still just as wild and, and crazy as he's ever been, you know, grew his own dope. And, uh, just a wild man, you know, he was a biker and I seen a lot of uh, interesting characters that I ended up drawing a lot of influence and my songs from it. Luckily, I did not uh, follow in their footsteps in life, but I can sure write some songs about them. What were the politics as you recall them growing up? I mean, what did your dad talk about? Did he ever talk about politics? What was he afraid of? And, you know, was he libertarian? Like, like what were his leanings? Oh, gosh, you know, he was conservative as hell and, and still is to this day. Uh, you know, he's very right-leaning. Uh, he was scared of anybody uh, and I love Dad. You know, Dad, uh, he taught me a lot of good things. Uh, but he, uh, I feel like to this day, he's probably scared of people that aren't just like him. You know, and, and I was that way for most of my life. You know, from a rural area. So I'm not pointing any fingers and saying anything bad about anybody. You know, that's where he's from. But he was, you know, he's been around the world. He was in the Navy and things. It ain't like he didn't see things. But it was a whole different, you know, it was during the Vietnam era. So he's, uh, things are, you know, a little different than they were then. You know, I don't know, better or worse, I couldn't tell you. Is he still in Southern Illinois? Yeah. Yeah. He's still there. Now, he moved to Florida for a while, had a place down in the Keys and then went back and forth and, and sold that. And uh, now he's just back on the farm and he don't stray too far from there. He might go up the bar and shoot a little pool or something, but that's about it. So you come to Nashville, you think you're going to be a country star. You become a songwriter. I mean, right there, people would die to have their songs played by bona fide country stars at such a young age as you were. Talk about arriving in Nashville, and it had to be a little bit of a culture shock for you. Oh, it was very much a culture shock. You know, we'd never even lived in, in a town before. We Actually, we didn't move into Nashville proper until about 10 years ago. Uh, so we'd always lived on the farm, and uh, we moved down here in the summer of 1998. Uh, I was 28 years old. I had two kids, me and my wife did. I had a call. It was, it was kind of strange because I kind of, you know, I, like I said, I tapped out that regional following thing and, and decided that I was going to get a real job. So I went to work in, in a tire factory, uh, General Tire up in Mount Vernon, Illinois. And for the area, it was a really good, a really good job to have, you know. And uh, that lasted a couple of years and I just, I wasn't cut out. I knew I wasn't cut out for that gig, you know, it wasn't my thing. So I was working for my dad and his wife. They had a little mom and pop uh, uh, motel over in Marion. I would come back and forth to Nashville. Dad would give me a day or two a week to come down here and try to hit the Bluebird Cafe, you know, and this and that. Because I, I got a call from a guy named Scott Simon. When I met him when I was a teenager, he was a music attorney here in town. And he later went on to uh, run Sony Records, signed the Dixie Chicks, and now he manages Tim McGraw and, and several other acts. Great, great dude. He kind of got the plan of the bug in my ear that I needed to write songs. He was like, I like your singing. You're a good singer. He said, but uh, nobody's going to give you their top material because they want to pitch him to, you know, Tim McGraw's and Kenny Chesney's and George Straits of the world. And that kind of pissed me off a little bit, kind of got under my skin. I was like, really? 
And then later on, when I became a songwriter, I realized, oh, hell yeah, I'm not going to give my song to a new guy. I want them guys I'm going to make some money with it. So I finally moved down here. And my dad, he would, you know, like I said, let me come down here a day or two a week. And finally, after about a year of that, he said, why don't you go ahead and move and I'll keep you on the payroll for a year, which was, I think he was paying me 400 bucks a week. So we bought a house out in the country out here, me and my wife, and uh, 400 bucks a week. And she, she was a stay-at-home mom at the time. And uh, that got me through the first year. But I told my dad, I said, I, if I get any songs recorded, I found out about publishing. I said, I'll give you the publishing on it. Well, that bit me in the ass because the day that I moved to town, I wrote my first hit song. And uh, it was a 50-week top five, you know, took 50 weeks, climbed the charts slowly forever. Sold a couple million records, has been on three albums. Tell us about the song. Uh, the song's called Right Where I Need to Be. You know, I wrote it the day that I moved here with a buddy of mine, Casey Bethard. I was just in the right room at the right time with the right guy. You know, people say, man, you must have been really good when you got here. I was like, no, I was just in the right place, you know. But it took a long time for me to figure out how to really write songs. I, I wasted a lot of good ideas on the, on some shitty songs, as everyone else did, I'm sure. Let's talk about Nashville for a minute and the country music business. Because you're in a very unique position where you straddle the current country music, right? Which I don't know how we, we want to call that just country. We call it pop country. I don't know what you want to call it. But then you also, you work with like Dan Auerbach from the Black Keys, you're with these rock guys and then you know you're americana i mean chris stapleton jamie johnson allison krauss you're you know all those characters if there was a venn diagram everybody's circle it has a little kendall marvel in it man that is such a unique place to be how did you find yourself in that position and do you see uniformity with it doesn't matter if it's um brad paisley or you know, one of those guys and Jamie Johnson. I mean, do you kind of see we're all in the same stew here or are there really differences? I think we're all in kind of in the same stew. There's just good and there's bad to me. You know, that's the way I look at it. When I moved here, the contemporary stuff that, that was getting on the radio, I could write. I was proud of, it, you know, to get a George Strait or a Gary Allen or Jamie Johnson. That, that's what was on the, getting on the radio, you know, and the, that was great music. And somewhere along the way, it turned to this one song where everybody sang that one song, you know, about girls in shorts and tailgates and bonfires and just wasn't my bag. I mean, I wrote about that when I was young, but hell, I'm going to be 50 this year. It's like, I can't do that. You know, but, but hanging around with those uh, rock and roll people, you know, the, the Dan, Dan Arbox of the world and uh, Chris Shiplets, you know, from the Foo Fighters and guys like that. We just all have a love of good music. It doesn't have to be country. It doesn't have to be rock and roll. If it's good, I dig it. I like to surround myself with people who are better than me, you know, more talented than me. And it, it just makes me look better. <laughs> I completely agree with that as that's what I've done my whole life. <laughs> just hang out with people who are better, smarter, and, and uh, you'll, you'll learn something. So let's talk about the politics a little bit. Where do you lean? What are the, the issues that mean the most to Kendall Marvel? Uh, I would say, you know, I'm, I'm in the middle. Uh, you know, I get called out on Twitter a lot because I, I am pretty vocal on, on that. You know, I'm a, I'm a proud gun owner. Always have. You know, I grew up in the country. I hunted and fished, and I uh, have shotguns, rifles, and a couple handguns. You know, to protect my my family. I don't have anything outside of that. Uh, I think some of this shit is ridiculous that people want to carry around with them. You know, I I don't I don't understand why. It, so I'm a Second Amendment supporter, but I'm also a common sense kind of guy. I'm a huge uh, civil rights person. Uh, I think everybody should have the same rights. You'll be able to marry who you want. Anything that I can do, anybody else should be able to do. 
So I, I straddle the fence, you know, and I, I'm not a party guy. I'm more of a person guy, you know, and that's, I get called out a lot now just for saying stuff about the president that we have right now. I just, you know, I wouldn't like him if he was a Democrat. If it was another Democrat uh, speaking the way he does and uh, the division and strife it causes, uh, I would be calling anybody else out just as bad. You know, I'm kind of, I guess I'm in the middle, huh? but uh, it's, it's a weird time. And, you know, people, they criticize me and a lot of other artists, too. They, I guess they think you're not supposed to state your opinion unless it's their opinion. I don't know. It's just very strange. I'm ready for this. Uh, I'm ready for this to be over. For one thing, I'm ready for November to roll around and see what happens and see if enough people is sick of all this shit as I am. It does seem, and, and this is something that was kind of one of the origin ideas behind this show, this idea of the intersection of politics and music. There's an attitude out there in, in all of our fan bases that it's shut up and sing. We don't support you to tell us what you think about Donald Trump or or Second Amendment issues or, or school issues or even, uh, you know, disability rights, uh, something that, that means a lot to me. We support you. And let's admit it. They pay us. Right. Our fan bases. We wouldn't be in our homes. We wouldn't have our cars. We wouldn't have food on our tables without these people. So um, they're a member of our organization but shut up and sing. You know, I, I've gotten that on, on social media from time to time. How do you think uh, an artist, particularly like you, because I could see someone who was a Trump supporter loving your music just as much as the most left-wing progressive out there. That's what's so great about you is that there's something for everybody in it. So, you know, you've talked about getting some, some backlash on social media. How do you handle that? Well, thank you for that compliment, first off. But the shut up and sing thing, uh, I don't sing on Twitter. You know, that's the thing about it. I don't do that in my shows. I don't go to my shows and talk politics, and I'm not going to, you know, unless I have to call somebody out for doing something stupid. You know what I mean? If that's the case, then I, then I would. But I'm not singing on Twitter. I tweet stuff just like the president does. He, he tweets some crazy shit, and sometimes I tweet some crazy shit. That's just the way it is. Nobody's telling him, shut up and be president, though we probably should. So that's just the way I look at that. You know, that's, I have my platform. Everybody has a platform, but some people just get really mad if your platform is bigger than theirs. And they think, you know, you're, you're stepping on their territory and talking against them or bad about them. And I have, you know, I have a huge uh, Trump base, uh, fan base, you know, a lot of conservatives and they're great people. I'm not saying anything bad about them. And I have a, a left-wing following as well. You know, we have our show here in Nashville called the Honky Tonk Experience. And that's what the experience part of it is. It's all walks of life. We've had everybody join us from Allison Krauss to some of the Foo Fighters, you know, to it's not just country music. It runs the whole gamut. And I think, you know, that's the way my fan base is. And I like that. I don't want to be uh, somebody who has just uh, one kind of person coming to their shows because that's the way I grew up. I was that till I was grown. I was away into my forties. If you wasn't like me, there was something wrong with you or you were weird, you know? And, uh, I have, uh, like I said, two kids, uh, uh, having a gay son uh, kind of does that. You know what I mean? It kind of, when it hits something close to home, it completely changes the way you look at anything. So can you talk about that? What was the process for you? Were you immediately accepting or was there a process to your accepting? Oh, no, there was, it was immediate. Uh, I mean, he, he, my son, you know, anybody that disowns their child for who they are, uh, they're the ones with the problem, the way I look at it, you know. Uh, I always knew uh, it wasn't something that anybody would wish upon their child. Nobody wishes anything on their child to uh, 
be looked upon any different than anybody else. You said you have a disabled child. Mm -hmm. You don't want anybody looking at your child any different than uh, they would look at anybody else, you know? So, and we knew from an early age, we obviously didn't want to admit it coming from a Christian background, you know, Mm -hmm. that uh, seems to shun anybody who uh, is not like them. A lot of them do. Not everybody does, but some hardcore ones still do. Uh, But no, I was immediately accepting my wife and I both were just like, yeah, you know, you are who you are. Uh, Life is too short to uh, uh, hide in the closet and uh, not be yourself. So your father, how accepting is your father of his grandchild? And how do you and your father get along like on this line of family and differing views with politics? Do you guys just not talk about any of it or do you have an understanding? I, we try not to talk politics. I mean, he, he loves his grandson and that's that's all that matters to me. You know, I don't know what people think inside. You know, he doesn't treat him any different. And that's, that's all I ask. You know, uh, he loves him and... Uh, may not understand it. I don't know that he does or does, but I, we try to stay away from politics. You know, uh, we've had some discussions about some things and uh, we, don't, we don't really argue about it. And I'd rather keep it. I'd rather not talk about politics and just hang out and visit. I don't see him as much as I want to anyway. Uh, so I would rather keep that even out of conversation, you know, with him, but, uh, or with anybody for all that, that matters. I don't particularly want to talk politics, you know, uh, with friends and stuff. There's nothing really good unless everybody is exactly like you. Uh, nothing good comes out of it. You know what I mean? That's not good either when everyone's exactly like you. It was terrible. We have learned so much, my wife and I, because we both grew up in the same area and in the same kind of households. By surrounding ourselves with people who is not exactly like us, it's been so eye-opening. And we have a lot of conservative friends. We have a lot of liberal friends. And uh, they're all our friends. And, and, and it's a great feeling to be around somebody who makes you a little uncomfortable at first. Being uncomfortable made me very uncomfortable. But now it doesn't. You know what I mean? Obviously, if somebody's sitting there offending me or uh, pissing me off, I'll just I'll just leave. But hey, it's good to be challenged every now and then. Sometimes you learn something and you think, man, I almost thought that was wrong. But I think then people are right about that, you know, so it's a good thing. Hey, everybody. I know we don't get out like we used to, but I still like to have a close shave. I've tried every razor blade on the market, and I finally found the best one for me, and I think it'd be great for you as well. It's called Harry's Razor Blades. Have you heard of these? I'll tell you, the blade itself gives me the cleanest, closest shave I've ever had. And right now, for a limited time, listeners of my show can redeem their Harry's trial set at harrys.com politics. You'll get a weighted ergonomic handle for a firm grip, five-blade razor, with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel and aloe to keep your skin hydrated, and a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy to grab on the go when we finally get on the go again. Go to harrys.com politics to start shaving better today. Let's get back to music. Talk about the transition from writing for all these country men and women. And then here you are back on the stage. You're building your own Kendall Marvel story, you know, like the, the Kendall Marvel show. Talk about what was that like after you had already established success in one end of the industry to go out and chart a course in the other? You know, like I said, it got to the point where I just couldn't write those songs. You know, and being a, a professional songwriter, my job is to get songs recorded and get them on the radio. That's how we make a living. That's how our publishers make a living. And there just came a time that I just couldn't try to aim at mainstream radio because it was just saying stuff that I just couldn't 
I just didn't, I didn't like it. Didn't want to write it. Didn't want any part of it. So at 46, right after Chris Stapleton, you know, blew up on the 2015 uh, awards, I was like, man, you know, we've all known this around Nashville for 15 years, how good he is. And it just took an opportunity for him to everybody to see it. There's outlets out there now. We don't have to be on the CMA awards, but Justin Timberlake to do that. You know, the Sturgill Simpsons, the Tyler Childers, Cody Jinks of the world, who receive very little radio play that I hear anyway, yet they'll sell out, you know, Bridgestone Arena or uh, St. Amphitheater downtown. And it's like, what in the hell is going on here? You know, these guys have built a loyal fan base. They find out by these people some way, and it's not just word of mouth. So, uh, you know, the digital platforms uh, don't necessarily help songwriters, but they help artists like me, who's 50 years old, who's not don't have a prayer of getting on the radio. I'm not ignorant. You know, I know that country radio is not going to play a 50-year-old bald guy with a big gray beard. They're not going to do it. But at 46, I decided I was going to make a record. So I enlisted the help of a friend of mine named Keith Gaddis, a great guitar player uh, from Austin, Texas, and played with Dwight Yoakam for years, just a great songwriter, producer, guitar player. And we made we made my first album, Low Down and Lonesome. And uh, it just it kind of took off from there. You know, started building a fan base. And, and then Chris took me out on tour. You know, I got to, I got to go tour in uh, the U.K. with Brothers Osborne. That was probably my first big tour uh, that I got to go do. I'm big fans of those guys. And then Chris took us out last year with, with Brothers Osborne as well. It just kicked other doors open. And then the Dan Auerbach call came and, uh, him and Dave Ferguson uh, produced that last record. I hope to keep building on that, you know, just every record, just a little more credibility. So what puts you on Dan's radar? Uh, Dave Ferguson. Uh, I was working with a guy named Clay Bradley. He was managing me for a little while, but now he's a new guy at BMI. He's the head of writer relations. He introduced me to Dave Ferguson, and Ferguson liked my record. And he was like, his, his, his exact quote to me was like, he said, I don't take a shit without talking to Dan Auerbach. He said, so let me go play this for Dan. So a couple of days later, he called and said, Dan wants to meet you. Come over to the studio. So I went and met him. And obviously, I knew who Dan was and who the Black Keys were, but I honestly didn't listen to him that much. My kids, when I told them, they were both like, oh, my God, we love the Black Keys, you know. And, and of course, a couple of their songs, you know, after I listened to them for a while, I'm like, oh, God, I remember that song from an Apple commercial or whatever. And, uh, and me and Dan just hit it off, and we wrote, I think, four or five days. Uh, we would write at 10 o'clock in the morning or 2 o'clock, and Dan would bring his favorite co-writers in to join us. And uh, a couple of the guys I'd written before, and some of them I hadn't. And uh, in four days, we wrote, I don't know, 17, 18 songs and uh, recorded 15 or 16 of them, and the record came out of that. It was just so easy. And that's solid gold. Solid gold sound, yeah. It's such a great record. Oh, thank you very much. So it sound, wonderful. It sounds so different than my first one. You know, my first record was a honky-tonk rock and roll record. This was a more 70s uh, vibe, you know, just very uh, cinematic and hell we cut a BG cover, you know, that I didn't even know it was a I didn't know it was a BG song like we cut it. He played me a version from uh, a guy named Swamp Dog, a blues sounding version of it. And it was really cool. And I was like, Yeah, I'll cut that. Really melodic song. And then we cut another song called Houston that was a Dean Martin song. Uh, Lee Hazelwood mm-hmm. actually wrote it and recorded it first, but Dean Martin had a hit on it. I mean I got a lot of songs, but uh, I'm not scared to cut a cover song if it's something cool takes me somewhere different so i hope to keep growing like that as a recording artist as well i didn't start anything till i was about 30 but some of us started touring when we were younger fellas and now you and i are the same age it sounds like i'm 49 yep i'll be 50 in october so okay i'll be 50 in march um so touring as an older guy you know it's a different than touring as a younger guy right so what was that like your kids i guess were out of the house by that point 
Yeah, yeah, they were grown. Uh, actually, both my kids, they moved to L.A. for a while and then and moved back to Nashville. And uh, my daughter, Shelby, I think you've been in contact with her, but she actually manages me. When we went out with Stapleton, she went out to her manage for us. And that, that was her first experience as that. So it's kind of a family affair. My wife, she goes most of the time with me, unless I'm going to play in a, in a cornfield in Iowa or something. And she'll be like, ah, I'll set this one out. But on that tour, you know, she jumped on the bus and went out with me and the band. And we had a great time. And so it's kind of a family affair. My son comes to, uh, he works, but it, he, he comes to anything that he can. On that tour, I think he flew in several times, drove down, him and his partner drove down a couple of times to some different stuff. And uh, I try to include everybody on it. We're a very tight-knit family. We spend a lot of time together. We vacation together and uh, have a lot of meals together. And it's just, uh, yeah, I, I try to include everybody. So that makes it that much easier. I went out on a little tour, on a little headlining tour uh, earlier this year. And I was gone, I guess, 10 days. Uh, without him. My daughter came on some of it, but I didn't see my wife and son for 10 days. And that's, uh, even for an old guy like me, that's kind of a, that's kind of a long time. You know, you start missing home and missing, missing your family. And- I think 10 days is the limit. We've done it since 2001. We've done it every which way, right? We've done weekend warrior. We've done just gone for months. We've done two weeks on, two weeks off. We've done it all. And at this point, I, I kind of feel like, uh, as far as the, the home life goes, uh, 10 days, and that's kind of where, you know, it's tough on both spouses, um, especially with the kids involved. Yeah, that'd, yeah. Be, that'd be tough. You know, I was lucky enough to write songs and raise my kids and stay home and go to all their sporting events, coach their basketball teams and, and all that stuff. So, yeah, that how, why that worked out that way, that I'm glad it did. I was disappointed for a while that I wasn't making anything as an artist at that time of my life, but I'm so glad it didn't. I'm glad it worked out the way it did just because, you know, I got to stay home and be there for them. And now they're there for me. Well, speaking of being there for people, um, you got a band, I got a band. They're suffering right now. They're not working. I did see that you were doing these honky-tonk happy hours to raise some money for them. What do you see as the future here, um, the next year? Uh, an article came out this weekend in Vice News where they're talking 2022, to be realistic. I know our band, we have a full schedule book for 2021. We start in March. I personally think, best case scenario, it's this time next year. We're back out on the road. What, 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 what are your thoughts on that? And, and how, how's your band doing? How are those guys doing? They seem to be doing okay. Uh, me and my uh, bass player and my guitar player, Philip and Jabe, uh, we write about once a week. So they're both songwriters as well. So I've seen them a lot. I haven't seen Brian, my drummer, too much. Uh, he gives some lessons here and there. And luckily, they I think they've all managed to draw unemployment up to this point. You know, this week, I guess, that got cut off until yeah. they draw that out. Since they've got that, you know, obviously, it's it's helped them a lot. But I tried there before they got unemployment, you know, to raise raise a little money as much as I could and, and just give it to them. You know, I have, I have royalties and things from songwriting that will help me to get through times like this, you know, and uh, they're not as lucky. So uh, I try to help them out all I can. Obviously we want to get back to work. Hopefully we'll have a vaccine for this, you know, cause all the stuff for this year, you just got moved to next year. Uh, so we'll be back out with Stapleton, uh, supposed to be uh, all those festivals, you know, shaky boots and all those cool festivals. I hope they make it back, but I don't look for anything. Like you said, if we could pick up in the spring next year, I'd be a happy camper. It would be incredible. You know, some people's working right now. I was supposed to be in Alaska today. Uh, I do a thing up there every year called the Backyard Barbecue that I started years ago with a buddy of mine up there. And uh, it's just acoustic performances. But, they're, you know, there's usually a couple thousand people at these events. And a couple artists had come out early and uh, people weren't doing what they were supposed to do at these shows. And, and I kind of called them out, you know. And then, uh, then it came time for me to go do some jobs and I was like, you know what? 
I can't go do these jobs when I've called other people out on it. It's not fair for me to do it when guys like Chris and all these other people who are kind enough to take me on tour, who have a lot more at stake and to lose than I do, are having to stay home. I need feel like I need to do everything in my power to not spread this any more than, than what it spreads. And if that means me staying home for the whole year and for the spring next year, then so be it. I hate it. It sucks for all of us. And I'm ready. I would go back to work tomorrow. If they said we have a vaccine, I'd go back to work next week. You know, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. Something I think about, Kendall, is um, catering, living on buses, all those things that the fans don't see. I mean, we're worried about their safety first and foremost. Then there's the back of the house safety. It's going to change dramatically, right? I would think so. Unless I mean, unless they had this miracle vaccine, I think they're just like, okay, this uh, it's going to kick 95 percent chance. You're going to be fine, like a flu vaccine. You know, flu season. You know, they say, you know what? My doctor, he's always real honest with me. He'll say, I say, how's the vaccine? So, well, you know, this year probably there's a seventy percent chance you won't get it, and life goes on. You know, with that. So until they find something that is that good that works that well, uh, yeah, things are going to be weird as hell, and they may always be weird after this. I have no idea. Yeah, I really feel like uh, we have the smartest people in the world working on this stuff. They're going to find something that's just going to take a bit. So we have to be patient and wear a damn mask and quit being stubborn. I mean, we got, you know, we all got, nobody wants to wear that. I, I hate them. But when I leave my house, I'm going to wear one. And, you know, uh, I thought I had, I thought I had, and I might've had it in February. I got really sick on that tour, was sick for a couple of weeks. And then last week, the same thing. Uh, I got really, not really sick, uh, just very congested and so tired. I couldn't get out of bed for about three or four days. I went and got tested again. It says negative. I don't know if that damn test work. I have no idea, but uh, I'm going to be safe and I'm going to wear my mask. And if I got something, I damn sure don't want to give it to somebody that's going to kill. Kendall, I've been to see Scott and Seth here, you know, a few times, more than a few times over the past couple of months. And I wore the last time I wore a mask and we shot a video, like a 45 minute video. And it was, we were out in the barn, you know, it was well ventilated, uh, 90 degrees, you know, North Carolina, uh, humidity and I'm wearing a mask and I was about to throw up. I mean, it's like, I give it to the people when I go to a store and you see the mask when they're, they don't have their nose covered, man, I, I get it. But we got to understand, we'll get better at this. We just got to stick with it. We got to wear the darn mask, maybe wear the goggles. I don't know. I'm completely paranoid. We got to heed the warnings because you don't want to get it. You don't want to get it. Absolutely. I mean, we're just such a selfish country right now, it seems like to me. It's really sad. You know I mean? I just don't understand the mentality of you're taking my rights away by asking me to wear a mask and protect somebody else. You know, if it just protected you, a mask, and you didn't want to wear one, then you're an idiot. You know, it's your own damn fault. But this is for other people. You're trying to keep somebody else from getting sick in case you're sick. You know, I used to look at, uh, like in Japan, I used to think I'd see Japanese people in the airport and I'd think, gosh, that's strange. They're wearing their masks. And then you find out from their culture, they're doing that to not spread sickness. And I'm like, good Lord, why are we not that kind? I don't know why we're not. I grew up in a very, uh, middle class, lower middle class neighborhood in South Jersey. And we had people of all races and, and religions and nationalities in this neighborhood. It was like, I was South Jersey. So it was where these casino workers lived. So these like blackjack dealers and security people from casinos. Anyway, there was an Asian couple who every morning I'd be on the school bus, like 645. They walked our neighborhood every morning, and this is 1978, 79, and they wore their mask 
every single day they went out, they wore that mask. And uh, yeah, like you said, it's part of their culture and it's not part of our culture, but hopefully it will become part of our culture. Exactly. And see, and, and there you go, uh, being politically correct. And you said Asian. I said Japanese. See, that's another <laughs> part of my upbringing that sometimes when I say it, I'm like, oh, man, I shouldn't have said that. But if you're in Japan and you see people who live there wearing the mask, I think it's okay to say they're Japanese because, I, you know, I don't know what nationality these these. Well, are. I hope that's not offending to, uh, to uh, Asian people. Uh, but, you know, sometimes I say stuff like that. And then that's what everybody's talking about, too. Now, you know, it's like the politically correctness. You know, what is correct to say? Yeah. You know, uh, my son's partner, Tavares, he uh, the other day, was I said something and I said colored people. And he was like, nope. <laughs> yeah. is that, I said, is that not good? He was like, nope. And I was like, well, <laughs> see, I said, and he's like, see, I'm glad you said that. That's not what you're supposed to say. And I was yeah. like, hey, I need all the educating that I can get. Feel free to call me out on stuff and, and tell me you sound like an idiot. I'd be like, oh, crap. Okay. I need to be called out myself because I'm a 49-year-old guy with two kids who I, I see myself like the generation gap, it's growing and I'm on the other side of it. And I'm, I'm just trying to learn the best I can myself. One more thing, I'll, I'll let you go. I think there's something that you and I probably agree on. If you're one-on-one in a room with somebody and God, I can't wait till we can be one-on-one in a room with, with somebody, doesn't matter. And you didn't know their political background and you're just talking to them. It doesn't matter what their political background is. We talk about the things of life, right? We talk about our families and our struggles, our aches and pains, our regrets, our loss. People are people, right? you know, and we put all this other stuff between us, right? And I think it comes from social media and it comes from the media. It forces us uh, sometimes into tribes, separate tribes, but really we're all part of the same family. And I can tell that you, you see that. I do see that. And I'm trying to learn more about that. I'm trying to, to not get my feathers ruffled when somebody says something to offend me because I say stuff that offends people. And I, like I said, I want people to tell me that when I'm wrong and that way I can correct it. But yeah, I love to get in the room. And that's, and that's what songwriting is all about too. You get in the room. And it ain't like we're, I like to write with people who are completely different than me that look at things different. That, that'll make a great song. If you get two guys that's country ass redneck like me, then we're going to write a country ass redneck song. You know what I mean? I want, I want to get with somebody who comes from New Jersey or something, something different, you know, that, that speaks a different language than I do. You know, they just talk different to me. They have different sayings that mean the same thing, but they're, they said different. The same thing with life. You know, it's, it's great to get around people and, and educate yourself. And I'm, I'm, I'm sad that it's took me this long in my life to learn that. Well, Kendall, I, I welcome you being in the room with people from New Jersey, but I can't imagine you ever singing "Use guys in a song. <laughs> Candle, this has been such a a pleasure for me and a joy, and it's really great to get to know you, and I hope that this is the beginning of a long friendship. I hope so, Bob, and I sure have enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Politics of Truth is brought to you by Osiris Media, produced by Bob Crawford and Adam Kaplan. Our executive producer is RJB. The program was mixed and mastered by Brad Stratton, artwork by Mark Dowd. For other great podcasts that connect you to the artists and music you love, please visit OsirisPod.com.